Welcome to Season 2, Episode 18 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Emily Hall. Emily is a writer, and her debut novel, The Long Cut, is out through Dalkey Archive in May. Welcome to the show, Emily. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How's life in New York? Um, at the moment, the weather is filthy. It's sort of rain snowing, and uh, it, it's just disgusting. But otherwise, it's great. It's lovely. <laughs> people seem to be back on the streets, and you know the museums are not full, but people are in them, and... Um, it feels good. It feels good to be here. So how have things recovered in the world of arts since the, this pandemic is kind of coming to an end, possibly? Um, I, I have to say, I don't, I don't actually know. I, I work at the Museum of Modern Art in, uh, in New York, and um, apparently we've done very well. We've done over the very revised down projections that were made uh, during the over the extent of the pandemic. And uh, I work in the Department of Publications and our books are selling really well. So um, I feel like there's there's an appetite to branch out from the, the kind of survival-based necessary things that we had to do while we were locked down. And I think art is very much a part of that. How did you get into editing catalogs for the Museum of Modern Art? Uh, well, really very much by accident. Um, I think that if I had wanted to become an editor of exhibition catalogs, I wouldn't, it wouldn't have happened. It could only have happened by accident. Um, after uh, I, uh, I did an MFA program in the mid nineties and after I left it, I ended up on the West Coast um, writing art criticism, book reviews, but mostly writing about art. And uh, when I came back to New York, uh, I didn't know what to do. And a friend of mine said, there's a job at MoMA editing art books. And I had some editorial experience and I had lots of art experience and they came together in the right moment. Um, and it's a great job for me. I love embarking on every new book is a whole, a whole world that opens up and asks the question of what art is and how it functions. We were talking before about the fact that you live in Queens and you keep returning to New York as a city. What's the thing that draws you back there all the time? Um, I'm sorry to say that other places don't feel like real cities to me. Um, uh, I lived I lived in Seattle uh, on and off for about 10 years and I felt like there was this like Seattle didn't stop comparing itself to New York. And, uh, and I, I wanted it to be Seattle, to be a city in its own right. And I was, eventually I just felt like I should just go back to New York since there's, there seemed to be this kind of longing for it. Um, I, uh, I had this, I've had the sense that everywhere else I've gone, people look at me strangely. They, uh, they, they think I'm mean or impatient. And in New York, I don't have that feeling. I feel that I, the pace here is very much my pace. And uh, I remember when I came back at one, one of my many returns, 
um, I remember thinking New York is going to eat me up alive because everyone there is so rude. And it turns out people here are not rude. People here respect your time and they respect their time and they, you know, they move you along. Uh, and I found that that really was who I was. I had to leave to find that out. Um, so here I am again <laughs> and not going anywhere. It is definitely a place with its own frequency. It operates on a different level to most of the places I've ever been in. Absolutely, but not in that sort of like um, city that never sleeps way. It's it's more of a sensibility. Um, I, you know, there are a lot of romantic ideas about what New York is. Um, and in many ways, it is just like other cities. But uh, I don't, I, it, it's a sensibility that I fit into. And I feel like in writing, I'm still exploring what that is. Um, to, you know, to have been born here and then left and come back um, to, to figure out this thing that's me, that's very much me and part of me. We'll move on to The Long Cut. It's your debut novel. It's a brilliant, funny book. It's about an artist in New York. It's a bit of a walking monologue, I suppose, as she tries to figure out what her art actually is. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about it? Um, the The premise of the novel is that you can make art out of anything in, in the contemporary world. Art can be made with anything. It can be about anything. You have, it, it, it's an infinite field. And if you want to be an artist, if you feel yourself to be an artist, how do you land on that thing? And uh, it's a question that I, I have asked myself as someone who is, you know, in the art world, but not making art. We're not really making art. Um, and at different times, I felt like different mediums or, or different ways of working were critical, were critical to the idea of what art was and that I could get to its essence if I would study that one thing. But then of course it would shift and it would be something else. And this, this was fascinating to me. So I thought, what if I took a character and narrator and put her through these paces and what would she land on as her work? And the book is also, um, it's, it's, it, it came out of a question that I uh, often ask myself about how art functions in fiction. Um, and I feel like I'm seeing more and more of it. Uh, it's not just that I'm alert to it. I feel like I'm seeing it more. But um, I've often, I, I sometimes find, let's say I sometimes find that art in books is made to do a lot of work that it can be overdetermined. Like the writer really wants it to function or, or signify in a certain way. And uh, it doesn't seem to me to rise naturally out of what the book is. And I wanted to see if I could have art that rose naturally out of what a book is. Um, and I, don't, I, I think that I succeeded. I wrote exactly the book that I wanted to write. Um, but uh, but who knows how that will seem to others. The structure is basically a digressive monologue. It's got mm -hmm. no chapter breaks. As a reader, I felt it propels you through the text uh, quite quickly. It gives the novel a, you know, a beat. Um, that's me, and I read it in one sitting. What's the appeal as a writer writing in that form? Uh, there's lots of appeal. It, um, it, well, for me, in the way it came out, it 
and it was originally written with no paragraph breaks, but I, I jettisoned that after, after a while. Uh, the, and in fact, it's quite different from how it, it came out in a rush, even though it took me 10 years to revise and finalize it, there, there was a whole draft very quickly. Um, but then I, I went back and made the path more deliberate. Uh, I, I, I moved the walk to the gallery to let it structure the whole book rather than just the end part when it came in. It, it let me, um, it let me pace the narrator and it let me, um, it, it gave me a way to sort of in, increase the, the absurdity of the language as she went because there was a, a more or less a plot progress and the, the language could be tied to it and get sort of more and more intense and nearly frantic at the end. Uh, uh, and this, I, I um, like, lots of people that uh, you talk to, I'm super, super inspired by Thomas Bernhard. Maybe inspired isn't the wrong word, but he, he's been a very important writer to me. And I kept thinking of uh, the first part of The Loser in which the narrator in, you know, is, continues to enter the inn. He keeps thinking things as I went into the inn. And, uh, and I loved how he gave himself all this time to, to have recursive thoughts and to return to the same topics all in this moment of entering the inn. And this uh, helped me enormously to think about how I would structure the long cut. I have here on my wall, I'm, I'm not going to show it to you because it's a mess and it's drooping, but I, I have a map of the things that actually happen and the recursions, the thoughts that come out of them. And when I was restructuring the book about two years ago, this was really helpful in seeing which actions brought up which thoughts. Hmm. One of the people that I was thinking of reading this uh, is one of your favorite writers. I know Jen Craig, and she blurred oh, the yeah. book. Um, oh, yeah. I think you have quite a few similarities with her, especially with the, mm -hmm. with the idea of the walking novel. And apart from Bernhard, did you have any other specific inspirations uh, for the book? Well, I want to say that I, I read Panthers and the Museum of Fire after, long after I read, uh, I wrote The Long Cut. In fact, it was already in production. And I remember reading it and thinking, you know, if I'd read this before, I might not have <laughs> kept going with The Long Cut. It's so good and it's so complete unto itself that... Um, I might have thought that does the world need another one of these? But yes, obviously the world does need another one. Um, so, so Bernhard, incredibly important. Um, Gertrude Stein, incredibly important for the pressure she puts on grammar um, and Samuel Beckett in that kind of pressure and also um, sort of absurdity, the idea of circling something with words and never being able to quite land on it. And the idea of grammar um, because I'm an editor and, and I, my, my goal in editing art writing is for a, a lot of clarity, uh, a lot, you know, so people who are not steeped in the art world can follow, you know, an intelligent person can follow along and follow an argument. Um, this requires, in my mind, incredible control of grammar and to go into a novel and break all my rules and do lots of things that I hate to see in other people's writing. Uh, that was, that was a, 
real influence too, actually, but Stein and Beckett were very much um, uh, of that for me. And I had a list of the books that I was thinking about. Well, some of them show up in my, in my top 10 list, so we can save them for there. When I was reading this, I couldn't decide um, whether this kind of novel critiques that capital A, especially modern art movement. Mm -hmm. But I think at the end of the day, it really is questioning what art is. And mm -hmm. we were talking before we started about, I guess, trying to, to define that and what makes art. Um, do you want to share your thoughts? That is such a huge question. <laughs> uh, you know, and it could be that if I could answer it, I wouldn't have needed to write a novel about it. Um, I think that I think that art, I, there's this great quote that I'm not going to be able to find offhand, but it was in an interview uh, between the poet Dean Young and Anthony Tomiazzi in Baum some years ago. And they were talking about poetry being um, sort of remnant of a rupture between worlds of your, your so-called real world and then your imaginative world. And this creates a rupture and poetry is what remains as a sort of signal of the rupture. And I feel like art functions that way too. It's, it's, it's both reality and not reality. It's like a transitional object for reality. Um, and I'm very much of the mind that, that art is philosophical objects. They're objects that you can approach with your mind and consider yourself with them, next to them, um, in relation to them, even if you hate them. But there's, a, there's also a whole strain of art uh, that obviously is not objects, performance and the, the relational art, which um, is very much what the, the artist who sets up situations is a, a kind of relational artist, you know, making meals for people, being, um, being one manifestation in this whole field of social practice. And I, I love the idea of an avant-garde and I love the idea of an avant-garde that we can't even recognize yet, that it's showing up in places that we don't even think to look, that, you know, it, it was started showing up in meals and it started showing up in activism and certain kinds of activism where artists have access that politicians or activists don't. Um, so that's a, that's a long answer that doesn't really answer your question. Um, I think that art is a continual question as long as we're asking what is this and how is it functioning, um, then, then we're still talking about art. Did you find, I guess within this whole art world, I know some people can be quite sensitive about these kind of definitions. Do you think it was risky writing about this world while still working in the industry? Um, <laughs> I didn't really think about that actually. <laughs> Um, I've, I've thought a great deal about how I would talk about art writing because I, you know, I edit people in my industry. Um, I did tell my idea to a curator once and she thought it was nonsense. But no, I don't think it is. I think most of the people in that I work with and that I know and that I'm friendly with have this large flexible definition. They, I don't think they would be 
of course, there are people who are interested in very specific lines of like academic inquiry or, or art history, but um, I don't think it's risky. I think it's an open conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe because I wrote about art for so many years and because I work in a museum, maybe I have the, you know, the pedigree where people won't be angry or offended by it. I, I, I actually don't know. I hadn't really thought about it. One of the most exciting things that I, I found about this book, uh, apart from the book itself, is the fact that you're being published by Dalkey. You're probably one of the first new writers to be published by the imprint as it's reborn. Um, what has it been like working with them? Well, I want to say I'm one of the first um, original English language books. Some translations, uh, original translations are coming out before the long cut. And uh, Dalkey Archive is my my dream publisher. Um, they, uh, when I when I was announcing that my book had been sold on Instagram, I thought, okay, well, I'll grab you know, I have a couple of Dalkey Archive books, I'll stack them up and take a picture of the, you know, of their logo. And it turns out I have so many. I already have so many. Um, the the story of getting the long cut published uh, is that lots and lots of editors at other publishers liked it a lot. But then, you know, the general answer was, I, I can't get my team behind it, which I think means we can't market this. Um, and then when I got a call from Will Evans, who's the publisher of Deep Vellum, which is merged with Dalkey Archive, and he said, your book is perfect. And this, um, this was my dream to find exactly the right readers. And Will has been amazing to work with. He has just such utter faith in his project and in his writers, um, his enthusiasm and his energy are absolutely amazing. Uh, the long cut was edited by um, Chad Post, who is also the publisher at Open Letter and uh, and is the head of um, University of Rochester's program, 3%, 3%. Um, and he was amazing to work with too. He, uh, he did a very careful, very well thought out edit of it and was really patient when a lot of my comments came back. Well, actually, um, you know, he'd delete a comma and I'd say, well, actually, there's a whole network of usage, comma usage I'm dealing with here. And he he respected that, but also made some really useful edits, lots of them. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this picture of, um, it's a rubber stamp uh, that was um, owned by the poet Muriel Rukeyser. And it said, please believe the punctuation. And she would stamp it on her um I guess on her submissions, and uh, that's what I f- feel like. Please believe the punctuation. So uh, Chad has been great to work with, and uh, I've met lots of people through him. Um, I uh, yeah. So I have. I, I it's been amazing, and I love the community of Dalkey readers who who are ready to give any book they publish a chance. I don't sense that there's that kind of community around lots of the big publishers yeah they have a very loyal following and I think there's a lot of us who are extremely happy to see that imprint still producing really high quality works it's fantastic are you working on anything 
uh, at the moment that you want to share with us? I'm working on a new novel um, that it's sort of a, a big ball of a mess right now um, because I'm trying to make a lot of things merge in it. Uh, it it picks up some of the questions of the long cut and and takes them further because I feel like you know art being an endlessly open question there's still more to investigate about that and so generally speaking it's a story of um, an encampment of women or or people who believe themselves who feel themselves to be women um, on a on a beach at what seems to be the edge of the world and. They go about their daily tasks that they've set for themselves, and some of them are very odd indeed. But they they are they're content there because they're not observed, and they're not the things they're doing aren't named. And if we looked at it from the outside, it would be very clear that they are making art and making performance and uh, sort of questioning all the things that art can question. But there, there isn't that hinge of a moment where a thing becomes a thing with a name. And it's not something that will eventually be discovered or seen or cataloged or put in a New Yorker profile about this famous artist that we've been ignoring or we ignored all their life. Um, but there are a lot of other things woven into it. I, ideas about emotion and music and, uh, and more walking. There's more walking in it. Um, and I, I should say that the one of the seeds for this book is um, is the Ciudad Abierta, the open city on the coast of Chile. Um, uh, it was, um, it is, it continues to be an architecture school, but the basis of the architecture is poetry. It's a poetic inquiry through architecture and they build on the beach and some of the structures sort of work with the disintegration that comes from being on the beach and others are kind of built against it. And when they, some of them are, are ephemeral, they don't last very long. And uh, they, the part of the original founding um, idea was this idea of the travesia where they would take off on these excursions across the continent and sort of remap it and make poetic inquiries about the, the content that they had renamed Amerida. I can't say it, Amerida, basically. Um, and I, I am very interested in artistic communities, in people who sort of hang together and open everything to question, as I said, like at the Bauhaus at Black Mountain College. Um, and I, I thought this was a really sort of pure profitable place to continue this capital A art question. When do you, when do you uppercase the A in art? What's that moment? Very good. Okay. Sounds good. I would look forward to reading that when it comes out. I do too. <laughs> All right. Shall we move on to your gateway books? What were some of the books that drew you into the world of art and literature? Ah, uh, okay. So um, this was hard. I'm sure you've heard that before. I mean, some books are gateways to the wrong thing, you know. So uh, there's a little bit of revisionism that goes on here. Um, when I was a child, I think the main book, like many writers, maybe of my demographic, was uh, Harriet the Spy by Louise Fitzhugh, which is about um, a young girl, a sixth grader who wants to be a writer and is... Um, 
has a spy route where she goes and spies on people and writes brutally honest things about them in her notebook. And uh, I, the idea, first of all, there were two voices in the story. There was her notebook and there was the narrative. And it was, it felt um, unlike my other children's books. Harriet's a little mean. She's actually a, a little mean or maybe a lot mean. And uh, the consequences for her are harsh. And then the message of the book is unusual where her, her nanny tells her you have to apologize and you have to lie. And the idea of the point of the, you know, the, re the resolution of the book is that you have to lie is unusual. Um, she says to yourself, you must always tell the truth, but basically to live in society, you have to lie. Uh, so that was a big one for me. Um, I had a big moment with Bleak House um, by Charles Dickens, um, which is, you know, in a, it's your sort of, on the one hand, such a big typical Victorian novel, but there's a lot of strangeness in it. There's this engine of the, the ongoing lawsuit of Jarndyce and Jarndyce um, that kind of rumbles through the book louder and softer. There's a bit in the middle where um, Esther Summerson has smallpox, I believe, and it's like a crazy expressionistic writing. And then the book ends with a dash. It ends in the middle of a sentence. And all these things like applied to the rich big canvas of a Dickens story, um, I thought were super interesting uh, and great. And I've read it several times. Um, one of the most important books for me was um, Thomas Bernhard's Concrete. It's not my favorite of his books, but it was important to me when um, I had spent years trying to write a big social novel. And uh, finally, I, I realized I was bored writing it. Uh, I was going to, it wasn't the book I wanted to read, and I definitely didn't want to write it, write it. And one of the problems I was having was I was keeping all these stories straight, and there was something I wanted to say about art, uh, but I kept sort of saying exactly the opposite. Like I, I couldn't control the book. And one day in a bookstore, I picked up Concrete and very quickly realized that can be the point, that the digression can be the point and the, the contradiction sometimes in the same sentence can be the point and the setting out to do one thing but doing another can absolutely be the point. And it was one of those moments when you know the heavens opened up and I realized all the things that I thought were my flaws were the writing. Um, th this was huge for me and showed me the way, you know, the way out of my writing problem. So that, that was hugely important. Um, and then a, a writer who's been very important to me is the art critic, Arthur Danto. Um, I, I can't really land on a single book because I've, I've read so many and so many of his essays, but he, um, he's, he was a professor at Columbia. He wrote for The Nation for many years, and he was previously a professor of philosophy. And he takes a very philosophical angle with art, and he writes beautifully. It's, there's, it's, there are specialist words in it, but it's free of jargon. And he leads you right to meaning, to how art makes meaning. And it's, he's brilliant. He was brilliant, and I highly recommend him. Um, yeah, so the, then, then there, I, I, I'd like to add there were some gateway artists too, if that's all right. Yeah. Um, like uh, the artist Mark Lombardi, who uh, 
who, who drew charts of corruption, of actual corruption based on research. And they're these big, beautiful flow charts, and they're completely real and researched. Um, and this is where I started thinking, is a chart, can a chart be a drawing or is it a drawing of a chart? What, what is it and what's it telling us? And, uh, and I know there were consequences for him for this research. And uh, so this, this stays with me always. And then another artist I would love to mention is Sigmar Polka, post-war German artist who made whole works. I mean, his, his oeuvre is incredibly varied. There's tons in it, but um, he made whole works based on printing errors. He would blow up a, you know, a, a half tone for a newspaper and find the, the errors in it and make a whole painting based on those errors. He did whole paintings based on ornamental flourishes in Albrecht Dürer um, engravings. And I think about those a lot as well. So they were, I would call them my gateway, some of my gateway artists. Um, yeah. Very interesting. Do you okay. have any blind spot books? Um, well, you know, I came up through art, uh, you know, I studied art history. It, I studied Renaissance, Italian Renaissance art and Italian. So I didn't come up through an English program or a, a literature, literature program. So I have a lot of blind spots. Um, I've read, uh, I've read all of Proust except for The Captive. I, I just can't seem to get through it. And I feel like I, I feel really bad about that. But I keep going back to it and then I can't read it. Um, I, I actually filled in one of my blind spot books, which was 2666, which is in my top 10 list. Um, I feel like, um, oh my God, what's his name? Arno Schmidt, is that right? Yeah. Uh, he's, I'm going to rectify that also, um, but he's, he's in my blind spot. All right, shall we move on to the things you're currently reading or you've recently yes. enjoyed or you're looking yes, forward to? Please. Yes, please. Um, so uh, one thing I recently read is um, Elena Knows by Claudia Pinheiro. Um, it's one of the uh, books from Charco Press. And I thought that that was, um, it didn't go where I thought it was going to go. Uh, it, it was, um, I kind of gasped at the end of it. Um, one thing that's interesting to me about her is, you know, a lot of writers get compared to or, or, or seem very involved with the idea of Thomas Bernhard, but for some reason, lots of them are men, or most of them are men. And uh, Claudia Pinheiro was one of the few who I've seen, you know, and Jen Craig also, obviously. Um, so I don't know if it's worth, you know, pursuing, the thought is worth pursuing further. But anyway, I loved Elena knows. Um, one book I read uh, recently is uh, called My Dead Book by my very dear old friend, Nate Lippins. Um, and it is, um, it's a sort of a litany, I guess, uh, a, a man thinking about his dead friends, um, the friends decimated by AIDS, the, the community, the art community and, um, and gay community decimated by AIDS. And it had, there is a kind of like book of the dead feeling of, you know, intoning the, na the names of the dead, but it's also quite bitter and funny. Um, it, it reads, 
it has something in common with Renata Adler um, and, and that kind of writing. I highly, highly recommend it. Um, I was uh, happy and lucky enough to get a, a, copy, a copy of Jen Craig's first novel, Since the Accident, which is another book I gasped at the end. Um, I, uh, the, the structure of it was so complex, the stories within a story, the, the like emotions that pop out and stick a needle in you and then retreat into the story, I thought was absolutely brilliant. Um, I'm looking forward to her new novel, Jen's new novel. Uh, I'm looking forward to um, a, a writer I met on Twitter, Carlos Labé, um, who uh, he's, um, he's Chilean, I believe. God, I'd hate to get that wrong. Uh, and I pulled all three of his books out of the shelves at the bookstore and couldn't decide which to read. I think the one I bought is called Spiritual Choreography. Um, he looks great. And I'm also looking forward to a book by Dasha Drindich called, I'm looking at it right here, Doppelganger. Um, oh, and Mark Haber's new book, St. Sebastian's Abyss, which actually I've already read and is, it's fabulous. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero and come back with Emily's Top 10. This week's episode is sponsored by Volmania, the new podcast from Ryan Alexander and Jordan Rothacker. It charts the work of William T. Volman. Their latest episode on an Afghanistan picture show is available now everywhere you get your podcasts. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Emily's Top 10. Since I can't stop talking about him, let's start with Thomas Bernhardt. And my favorite, favorite book by him is Correction. I think that it is, it's a perfect book. Um, that it's, it's echoes, it's uh, the, the, way, the way it's spatialized, the way different rooms and buildings sort of drive the narrator, um, the narrators through, uh, through their thought processes. The, the quick description of it is um, an unnamed narrator who has come down to sift and sort the papers of his friend Reuthammer who killed himself. And Reuthammer was a brilliant physicist who sort of put everything aside to build his sister an impossible building, the cone, um, his, his beloved sister. And he built her this building, the cone in the middle of a forest and then she died. And I, I think the cone killed her, frankly. Um, and uh, he sort of couldn't live with this and he, he wrote uh, an explanation of everything leading up to it, but then he went back and corrected it. He went back and crossed out everything. It's like he was trying to erase himself and, and take control of a story that couldn't be controlled. And it, it, this book is, I have like three copies of it and one in German I'm trying to read. I just, I feel a little possessive about it. Oh, also there's a sentence from it that I've been trying for years to diagram, to do a diagram of. Um, a diagram, a drawing of a diagram. It's uh, okay, I'm a little obsessed. Um, numbers two and three, I like to think of together. And one is um, Waiting for Godot, and the other is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Um, and there's lots to say about them. 
apart, but I, I really love thinking about them together. The way, um, the way Beckett sort of swirls around this question of narrative with a lot of absurdity and the characters don't know what the narrative is and can't find out. Um, there's that big hole in the middle of it. And it's the same thing with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern where you have these characters wandering around not understanding their role in the novel, but the nonsense doesn't prevent these amazing echolocating themes from, um, from appearing. I in fact did a diagram of those as well. Um, the idea of discovery of passage through into real into real knowledge. Um, it, so yes, those are both um, extremely important to me. Um, another book, um, number four, I guess I'm on, is called The Unprofessionals by a writer called Julie Hecht. And I, I wish I picked books that were easier to describe. <laughs> They're really hard. Um, it's about the friendship between uh, a woman, a very sort of strange, prickly, opinionated, rigid woman and a young man she's known since childhood. And it mostly takes place over the phone, a series of phone conversations. And you have no, it, it's so hard to piece together what happens before what. She'll refer back to an earlier phone call and she'll call it the yoga ball phone call and you to try to fit that into the timeline it's it's excruciatingly hard um but it but through all the prickliness and the people who are very hard to like not that you have to like people but they're very hard to like um this very rather tender story emerges um and uh it's a short short devastating book i love a short devastating book um Another book that was, it was a bit of a breakthrough book for me was uh, Lydia Davis's The End of the Story, her novel, which I read in graduate school. Um, and it's about a woman sort of atomizing the end of a relationship. And it, it feels like, and she, she keeps returning to the same ideas, the same scenes. And there's this feeling that if she took it apart carefully enough, she would understand why it happened or even be able to undo it. And the, the, this quality of, of perseverating on something and not being able to solve it, um, that's kind of a theme in these books, actually. Mm. Um, but, uh, but I know people love her short stories, and I do too, but I feel like this novel, it, it's not talked about enough, or I'm not hearing it. People are talking about it, and I'm not hearing it. Um, number six is 2666, which... Um, I had sort of not bothered to read because I was a little put off by the fandom around it. But then um, this past summer uh, and fall, uh, Chad Post did a sort of read along series on two month review where they divided it into, I can't remember how many weeks. And so I read along with it and, um, and read ahead. In fact, I was so compelled by it. I couldn't, I couldn't stop reading it. And, um, even the difficult part, the part about the crimes, it just, it absolutely propelled me forward. And I, I think I need to reread it to understand how he did that, or maybe I will never understand how he did that. But I actually appeared on an episode of Two Month Review, um, the part about Amalfitano talking about the function of art in the book and around the book, even in the book's design. And uh, it is just this incredibly like fertile work 
that all these things can grow out of it. Um, the more you pay attention to it, the more it does. So I, I love it. Um, for number seven, um, this is one of my favorite series. It's the Map and Lucia books by E.F. Benson. These are the books I read when I'm sick or sad. Um, there's a series of books about, they're, they're sort of light, scathing comedies about um, two women in interwar England uh, fighting for social supremacy in a small town. Um, they are devastatingly rude to each other. Um, E.F. Benson, the author, was the son of the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, and sort of quite a, well, for the time, a counterculturist. He was gay. Um, and uh, I don't know. I, I can't believe people haven't read these books. They're so great. Um, number eight uh, is Wittgenstein's Mistress. Um, I feel a kinship with David Markson for the 54 publishers before Dalkey Archive um, history. I, I feel like that book does something that I'm, I'm trying to do, which is it, it connects all these unconnectable things. And, and the premise of it is so sad. And it's so, um, it opens wide up this idea of what would, what would life be like if nothing mattered? If there were no, there was no way to have interrelationships with people, or even with objects, because they they disappear. You can burn a house down; there are no consequences. But it also, it's like this narrator rifling through her mind, you know, about uh, Rembrandt, for example, or about uh, opera, and all these things come together in this very sad, compelling way. That uh, I've read that one a few times as well. Number nine is The Good Soldier by Ford Maddox Ford. Um, that is another difficult timeline. It's, it's not just that um, the narrator is telling the story, looking back on it. He, it's sort of, he looks back and then events curl in upon themselves and then he moves forward and looks back and the same events curl in upon themselves. And again, you sort of have to put together what happened when and take stock of the narrator for the way he's avoiding telling you the story. And um, that, that is a fantastic book too. The last one is Madame Realism by Lynn Tillman. Um, it's been published in various forms. There's a, a wee one with a few stories. There's the complete one published a few years ago. And uh, this was a book that I loved because it's another way to talk about art. The, her character, Madame Realism, moves through the world looking at art and thinking about it. And you're not having the art explained to you in this academic fashion, and you're not having it explained to you in this pop culture fashion, but through an intelligent uh, narrator who is looking at it socially as well, the people who are around the art and looking at it and how she's interacting with it. And it's very character driven. Madame Realism is very real in that way. Um, but this, uh, opens up this whole sort of field of how we could write about art, how art can function in fiction. Um, and of course her prose, Lynn Tillman's prose is amazing. Uh, so that's my 10. It was a quite a job to keep it down to 10. <laughs> Definitely a challenge. What a great list. Thank you very much. You're welcome.
<laughs> Before we wrap it up, do you want to tell us where we can find you online and where we can order the brilliant The Long Cut? Um, I, I wish I knew what the best, um, I mean, you can go to dalkyarchive.com and pre-order it there, but would Dalky Archive prefer to have you buy it from bookshop.org? I, I really don't know, but you can get it there too. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Emily Hall NYC. And I, I only just joined Twitter in November and I have to tell you that I love it. Isn't that weird? I just, I've met so many, like all I hear is that people hate it. I've met so many great writers and, and interesting critics and I keep it very carefully to books and art. I'm not there to argue. I'm not there to actually say what I don't like. I want to talk about, create a net of what I do like. Um, oh, I discovered the New Zealand writer Pip Adam through uh, through Twitter. I'm so glad I know about Pip Adam. Um, actually, I'm being exposed to a lot of Australian writers. I, I got on a track and Martin Shaw has introduced me to so many different writers. Um, I'm on Instagram, but uh, I don't know. I, my Instagram isn't that interesting. Stick to Twitter. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, I should let you get back to your day in New York and I will let you go. But thank you very much for joining me. It's been so much fun. Thank you so much. Um, this has been fun. Thanks once again to Emily Hall. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod and you can email us at beyondzeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back with your next episode very soon.